Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 13th, 2018, and this is episode 2291 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, so it's a listener call show. This is where you pick the phone up and you dial 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Uh, or you can use the speak pipe. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and uh, click on contact, and you can find the speak pipe button there, and you can... Uh, Mash a button and give us a message through the magic of the interwebs. Either way you do that, call from a quiet area. Do me a favor, guys. I don't mean to complain or anything, but don't scream in the phone. And I mean, like, just being, like, even if you're just trying to be funny or whatever uh, or exasperated or something, you know. Um, I had a couple calls from one guy this week. They were, they were okay. I probably could have worked them in, but it was really over the top. And uh, I couldn't use them. Call from a quiet area. I had one with a bunch of background noise. Call a place where you have um, good signal. I had two calls this week that I think were pretty decent, and well, they, they just had a bunch of cutting out and stuff, and I couldn't get the full understanding of what you were asking, even to try to edit it and get enough of it to use on the air. Um, so yeah, guys, help me help you. I'm, I'm basically out of calls this week, uh, and and there was I had to scrape to do it. I have one call that I'm going to have to play with editing on a little bit to make it makes sense. Uh, I know what the guy's saying, but like it's all disjointed. He called four times before he finally got it through. Uh, it, it helps if you're going to call on something complex like this one's going to be. You know, maybe even write it down, or at least you know know what you're going to say for that opening sentence, and know what you're going to say when you're done. Um, I know it's hard talking to a computer that doesn't talk back, which is what the think line is. Um, but if you do those things, if you think about it, you'll be really likely to get on the air. The call volume is not massive. I guess after 10 years of answering questions, I've answered a lot of questions for a lot of people, and people are like, okay, I know now. Um, so we got room for new callers and new people. I just need you to follow the format so that I can use your calls on the air. We do have some good ones today, though. I have a question on using 18650 batteries to charge cell phones. I have uh, facts and thoughts about Texas for a homeschool family. Uh, how China presses citizens that leave, uh, and the warning that serves for us. Once again, I, Jack Spirico, am a jerk. Another Jack, your jerk call. I'm beginning to really enjoy these. Uh, I have thoughts on cryptocurrency and precious metal ETFs and uh, making decisions between the two with investing right now. I have dealing with two dogs in one doghouse. And why that can be more complicated than it sounds, big old it depends. And uh, I have a call on a St. Louis district attorney, a prosecutor, who... Uh, has put out what's called an officer exclusion list. It basically says if these officers are involved with the case, then I'm not going to prosecute it. But that's not really exactly what it says. That's what the guy says it says. I'm going to tell you why some issues like this are more complex, and they say more about the problems that we have than I think people want them to. Well, all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at this day in history. The, the day is September the 13th, of course, and in 1814... Francis Scott Key pens the Star-Spangled Banner. On this day in 1814, Francis Scott Key pens a poem which is later set to music and in 1931 becomes America's national anthem. 
the Star Spangled Banner. I think a lot of people don't realize it wasn't until 1931 that that happened. The poem originally titled The Defense of Fort McHenry was written after Key witnessed the Maryland fort being bombarded by the British during the War of 1812. Key was inspired by the sight of a lone U.S. flag still flying over Fort McHenry at daybreak, as reflected in the now-famous words, Star Spangled Banner. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in the air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Francis Scott Key was born on August 1, 1779, at Tura his family's estate in Frederick County, now Carroll County, Maryland. He became a successful lawyer in Maryland and Washington, D.C., and was later appointed U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. On June 18, 1812, America declared war on Great Britain after a series of trade disagreements. In August 1814, British troops invaded Washington, D.C. and burned the White House, Capitol Building, and the Library of Congress. Their next target was Baltimore. After one of Key's friends, uh, Dr. William Beans, was taken prisoner by the British, Key went to Baltimore, located the ship where the Bean, where Beans was being held, negotiated his release. However, Key and Beans weren't allowed to leave until after the British bombardment of Fort McHenry. Key watched the bombing campaign unfold from aboard a ship located about eight miles away. After a day, the British were unable to destroy uh, the fort and gave up. Key was relieved to see the American flag still flying over McHenry and quickly penned a few lines in tribute to what he had witnessed. The poem was printed in newspapers and eventually set to the music of a popular English drinking tune called To Anacreon in Heaven by composer John Stafford Smith. People began referring to the song as a star-spangled banner, and in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson announced that it should be played at all official events. It was adopted as a national anthem on March 3rd, 1931. I wanted to talk a little bit about who this Anacreon guy is. Right? Uh, Anacreon uh, was a Greek lyric poet. So this song is literally a drinking song that is kind of seeing kindredship with Anna Crayon, because Anna Crayon was like a poet and lyricist that basically made drinking songs. So it's a drinking song to, 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 to in the, from the 1700s, or actually the 1800s, uh, back to a cat from the year 400 BC, you know, the 400 BC era. He died in 485 BC, about commiserating, basically drinking together and getting drunk. And it was a gentleman's song from a gentleman's club, a gentleman's drinking song from a gentleman's club in London. In other words, very, very wealthy British men would get together and drink in a bar and hang out and have a men's club and sing this song that now is the Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem of the United States of America. And, and I would just like to point something out when people get really twisted up about things with you know, other people, whether they should participate in some of these national rituals. And that's what it is. It's a ritual doesn't mean bad. It's what it is. Saying the Pledge of Allegiance, standing for the national anthem, singing that. These are rituals, and they are state-based rituals that are designed to show patriotism and allegiance to the United States and a respect and reverence for what our flag and our ideals represent. That's what it is. If it makes you feel uncomfortable to hear it called a ritual, but you're all for it, maybe you examine that. Don't get mad at me for giving you facts. But I think it's kind of important to note that the people that founded this country, the people that you know authored the Declaration of Independence, that sat and negotiated until consensus 
uh, amongst the entire Continental Congress could be reached as to what a Declaration of Independence and the need before such would be written would require. Uh, these, these men, our first presidents, those who fought in the actual wars that, that freed our country uh, as far as the American Revolution and those that maintained our freedom uh, in the War of 1812 when this song was written, all of these people saw no need of some sort of declaration of allegiance to the nation. I want you to really think about that. And I want you to think about why. See, the king required such a thing of men. The king of England required that you would pledge your allegiance to him. And our founders knew that there was a danger in the, requis the requirement that thou shall declare that, that, you know, that you're loyal, a loyal subject even to a republic versus a monarchy, that there really wasn't a hell of a lot of difference. And what it makes me think of is this, and I put this out, and I put this out on Facebook today. It's just a little saying, and it is for me. Any society that feels the need to mandate patriotism is not worthy of its patriots. And kind of what I mean by that is, I, I don't have any huge need within myself to pledge allegiance to the flag or to participate in singing the national anthem, but I don't have anything against either of them either. And if I'm somewhere where that's done, I will stand and I will participate. And I will do that very much the way that if I came into your home, even though I'm not a religious person, and no matter what your religion is, whether you were Jewish or Christian or Muslim, if your family said a prayer before the meal, I would participate in your, your ritual, even though I don't 100% believe in it, or don't believe in it at all in the case of, of religion, because of a respect and a reverence for you and for your beliefs. When it comes to things like the National Anthem, I have a little bit more than that. I believe in the ideals that are America. I, I really do. I, I believe that the Declaration of Independence is one of the most anarchistic documents ever written. I guarantee you King George saw the, the, the founders as anarchists. Um, so, I mean, I, I believe in these ideals. But I also believe that if we are going to lose our minds... When other people don't participate, if we feel the need to compel others to participate with regulation or law or punishment in some way, and punishment doesn't have to be prison. Punishment can be just trying to destroy a person's career, to destroy a person's reputation, to attack a person's way that they earn a living. If we feel compelled to do that because someone chooses not to participate in a patriotic ritual, then what is the point of the patriotism? I, I hope that makes sense. Because to me, if we must compel others to participate, then what is the value of what we're participating in? My whole philosophy in life is that people should do as they please so long as they don't harm another. And I have yet to have been harmed because someone chose not to recite a pledge of allegiance to a, a flag or to sing a song. I have yet to be harmed in any way. And, and by God, stop invoking veterans with this, if you're not one especially. Because I'm a veteran and it didn't hurt me at all. It didn't hurt me one bit. And the oath that I took as a veteran, if, if those people aren't free to oppose what I believe, then what I believe doesn't matter. I hope that makes sense. Let's go ahead and get into it and take our first call of the day.
Hey, Jack. Brad from Southern California. I had a question for you or maybe even Stephen Harris. Uh, I use the 18650 battery for just about everything, flashlights, etc. I've got a good night core charger, etc. I'm looking to use a uh, battery bank to recharge phones uh, out in the field just as backup. So I've seen a couple on Amazon that uh, take various amounts of the 18650 battery, and you have yourself a, uh, a portable USB battery bank. Um, want to know if you had any recommendations? I haven't seen you uh, review any of those. I don't know if you have a go-to version. I tried one out on Amazon. It seemed pretty cheesy. Um, I don't, there's kind of a lot out there, and I'm not really sure what the best one is. Uh, anyways, thank you for all that you do. Okay, you you hear that call, not to pick on anything the guy said, but the weirdness to it, the modulation, all that's a call that's probably from a cell phone that's at the edge of its signal capacity as far as getting. That's what I was saying. Oh, look, and that one wasn't terrible, so I went ahead and played it, but I just want to kind of give you an idea. That's If it gets much worse than that, then it becomes unusable, and I have another call with some issues later. Um, okay, on this question, though, I have not found one that I like enough to recommend it. Um, if I, if you said, Jack, I just want to make sure, look, I got all these rechargeable 18650s, and if my cell phone's dead, and uh, I need to plug it in and get some power into my cell phone, I would frankly recommend then that you buy one of the very cheap, they kind of look like a, uh, a pen light, they kind of look like somebody would take a couple double A's, maybe a little smaller than that. Because uh, it's a single 18650 goes in them, uh, and it has a USB port on the end. And you just stick one in there and screw the cap on it and plug your USB cable in and charge away. And I, I personally think they're kind of junk. Uh, somebody left one here, and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And I used it a couple times when I was outside uh, to, to dump some charge in my phone when I was playing my Bluetooth on my phone to one of my outdoor speakers, and and, and it, it worked fine for that uh, a couple times, and it crapped out. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll pick up another one, and I didn't even really pay attention to what brand it was. I picked up another one, and it really didn't last much longer. Um, but they're cheap. I mean, you can get them for as little as two or three bucks, and you, you can get three or four of them, I guess. Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is even more, uh, for about $10. And you can put them in your emergency pack, and, you know, when one craps out, you can use it as a freaking digging device or something and get another one. The larger ones that take a bank of, like, four, you know, four of them, I think the concept is valid. Someone may make one that is completely uh, usable, but I haven't found it yet. I'm sure some of the good cell phone backup chargers... Um, from companies like Anchor, which I'll talk about in a second, um, have them inside them. But what else they have inside them is a certain modicum of intelligence and that controls the charge rate and prevents overcharging and some other things. And all of the ones I've looked at so far that you pop your own 18650s into I am not comfortable putting my name next to a recommendation to use it. I would really ask that you consider getting the Anchor Charger I talked about yesterday. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes today to that review of it that I had up yesterday. 
Um, it is a 28,000 milliamp hour, something like that. Uh, it actually will charge an iPhone 10 times. 10 times. And so it's, in my view, when you're talking about going out in the sticks and whatever, it's probably not the case that if you leave with one of those fully charged, you're going to need more than that. I mean, even when you're doing things like section hiking, a long trail like the Appalachian or Pacific Rim Trail, most people are, are, are coming off that trail into town, you know, every 10 to 14 days or even, you know, 20 days. And when you're doing that, you don't walk around with your phone on all the time. You know, you turn it on when you use it, and then you turn it off when you're in those types of situations. Um, with that, you know, being the case, I, I, I have a hard time understanding how, you know, 10 charges to your phone is insufficient. I understand the concept of, well, let's be efficient. I have these batteries. I use them in my flashlights. I use them in my GPS. I use them in everything else. So why would I not use them for my cell phone? And the answer is because as of right now, as far as I know, there is not a solution that I find good enough to trust. The last thing I want to do is, you know, kind of, because I'm not, I'm not huge on 18650s. I'm coming across the bridge. I really am. But in general, I'm still pretty stuck on my, my, my double A's and my triple A's. I have all my equipment for that. I have multiple chargers. I have a, you know, a battery station in my closet with four deep cycle batteries with uh, multiple AA chargers hooked up to it and inverters and everything like that. And I haven't seen the need to get one of the types of things you're talking about. And on top of it, I haven't seen anything that's compelled me to say, Because of who you are and what you do and, and the people that you recommend product to, you should get this one and try it. Basically, what I've seen is junk. I've seen nothing with any really solid intelligence built into it. And so I'm going to recommend any of the Anchor backup uh, battery packs. To me, they are the best thing on the market. I don't care, I mentioned yesterday, that they don't have a digital thing that says it's got 83 versus 80% power. Because that's not how you're going to make a decision with a backup battery pack anyway. When you see you're down to one bar, you've got 25% or less power to it, you know that you're almost down. You need to get it charged up again. You're not going to not use the power, though, if you need the power, right? You're not going to be like, well, since it's only got 10%, I'm just not going to use it. When you put it into your phone, it's not gone. It's now in your phone. You don't want to use it up. Turn the phone off. You know, And then you know the phone's on 70%. You shut it off. And then you turn it on when you need it. So I, I don't. That's, that is not how I make this decision. I make the decision on reliability, dependability, how good the company is at handling a problem if something goes wrong. I've been working on, on you know, when I, when I finally found the one I was willing to recommend, I'd, I'd used a couple other ones. I even recommended a couple other ones and said, I'm not completely satisfied. What I wanted was, because what I figured out over time with dealing with these packs, if you're going to have a problem with one, you're going to have it when it shows up or you're going to have it in the first month. If that doesn't happen, you're going to get a regular lifetime out of use out of it for how long you know that's just, that thing is designed. It can only take so many charges and discharges. That's the truth of any battery. 
Somebody that makes one that doesn't have that limitations got a billion dollar thing on their hands. But if you got past a month of use, it was going to be okay. And I wanted a company that in that first month of use, if something went wrong, they just said, we're not even worried about it. Here is a new one because we, we screwed up. That's Anchor. And so that's what I recommend. And my recommendation until I find something better will not change. If somebody out there knows of a good, I guess it would be really a USB charger that basically makes a battery bank out of, you know, four or whatever 18650s, let me know. If I research it and it looks solid enough, you know, I'll, I'll get one. But it's, you know, if you're going to be recommending it for some people to take out in the field and stuff like that, then it, it can't be something that I can grab and squeeze and it pops apart. It's got to be well-built internally and externally. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My question is simple this week. Um, can you tell us some stuff about Texas? We are a homeschooling family, and we are studying Texas this month. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, I'm going to lead off with I, I don't think you're asking about moving here, but if you ever decide to, Texas is – not the friendliest homeschool state, but it's one of the friendlier ones. It's it's pretty easy uh, to homeschool in Texas, and, and that that's a good thing. And that I, I really think if you were, and I've never done it. It'd be an interesting homeschool project for homeschoolers to have their kids, especially older kids, as they get you know more into that kind of high school age where they start to have a real better grasp of an understanding of personal liberty. To do a project that determines, I would love to see this project. Maybe model it on a scientific study and learn how you report data that's been gathered by others in a scientific study and then do the same thing and gather the data and what is the, what is the correlation between how friendly a state is toward homeschooling and how friendly they are to liberty in total. And that there's a lot of data and a lot of studies that are already done that you just correlate the two and make a determination on that so I think that would be interesting. Um, I mean, one of the first things I try to get across to people that are not familiar with Texas, just on a basic thing, and this is not an ego thing or a pride thing, but Texas is really big. And, and it is funny, sometimes I'll meet somebody, you know, when I'm traveling, I'll be like, oh, I have a friend that lives in Texas, maybe you know him. And I'm like, really? I don't, I don't, what? Because, like, if you said that about Pennsylvania, I'd think you were insane. If you said that about Delaware... I don't know if you've ever driven down to Delmarva Peninsula, but as small as people think Delaware is, it's pretty big. But Texas, are you kidding me? So if you took Texas and you, you overlay the state of Texas on a map of, of, of Europe, the first thing you'll see is it's bigger than any single nation in Europe. But if the, the, the southern tip of Texas were, let's say, laid upon Rome, Italy, um, the upper panhandle corner would land somewhere in Copenhagen, Denmark, and the the what they call the western panhandle, so the northern panhandle uh, tip would be somewhere probably about the English Channel, pretty close to London. And then your eastern border would be somewhere like around Budapest, Hungary. And you know your your southern part of the panhandle, that lower border by like uh, by, by like a real uh, a real grand uh, real Bend State Park. Uh, would be somewhere in the middle of France, somewhere near like Lyon or, or Bordeaux or something like that. That's how big it is. Texas is so big, and it's not a joke, right? Texas is so big that El Paso 
is closer to California than it is to Dallas. El Paso, Texas is closer to California with two stations in between it than it is to Dallas. And when you get to Dallas, if you were driving from El Paso through to, ex to Texarkana to head to Arkansas, you got another 180 miles to go from Dallas to Texarkana. So, yeah, it's, it's a really big state. We were also our own country. From 1836 and 1845, it was known as the Republic of Texas, and it was a lot bigger then. Uh, the Republic of Texas included parts of New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana, all the way up to the Canadian border. And it held the most uh, silver-rich portions of Montana, which was one of the reasons that that had to be broken up in the eyes of some other people. Um, we also have a lot of big cities in Texas. Texas is seen as like wide-open country, but six of the top 20 largest cities in the country are in Texas. So we're, we're fairly heavily populated. People from Alaska will say Alaska is a lot bigger than Texas, and it's true. But when you look at the size of the state relative to the population and having this huge state that also is mostly, we do have some pretty vacant space out in West Texas, but, but overall, you know, the majority of Texas has communities just about everywhere. Uh, that gives us a lot of resources and a lot of things that, that we're capable of doing. Um, I will say it's a friendly state. Not every single part of it in every single place, but overall it's a friendly state. Some of the stereotypes that I see about the South and Texas in particular, and one of my favorite shows is Big Bang Theory, but of course uh, Sheldon Cooper's mom on that show is uh, you know, a complete extreme religious Texas conservative. And even those that are are not that bad, I would just say. And most places in Texas, it doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or how you think or how you talk, people get along together just fine. It's a very welcoming state. Our state motto, in fact, is friendship. Um, there's just a, a, a ton of stuff. I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say. Um, uh, Six Flags Over Texas is the first ever Six Flags. And, of course, now there's, there's Six Flags, uh, amusement parks everywhere. But that name comes from the fact that there have been Six Flags uh, flown over Texas, from the Spanish, the French, the Mexicans, the Republic of Texas, uh, the United States, and the Confederacy have all flown over Texas. That original concept of six flags over Texas was uh, based on six actual flags. Uh, we grow a lot of sheep here. You hear a lot of cattle talk about Texas, and uh, you can hear some Texas cattle people make fun of some sheep, sheep wranglers uh, pretty hard, but we produce more wool in Texas than any other state in the United States, and that's chiefly because the Edwards Plateau in central Texas is one of the top sheep-growing areas in the country. Um, we are the, you know, back to the Republic of Texas, we are the only state that entered the United States through a treaty rather than a territorial annexation. So you had your original 13 colonies, And, of course, we all know the story of how they became these states united. And then once that happened, as we settled this country west and acquired different territories and all, they, they went from being territories to states through an annexation process. Basically, 
The country just said, yeah, we're taking you. We're going to define these borders, and now you're a state. Put your government together. You're part of the union. And um, the, the, the nation of Texas entered into a treaty to join the United States. And that led to some things that are pretty unique to Texas. There is no federal land in Texas. There's no national land in Texas. If the federal government wants to do something... On Texas land, they have to negotiate, pay, compensate the state of Texas to do so. So that's a, that's a problem a lot of, especially western states, have massive federal land grabs. We have our own land office. Everything's held within the state of Texas. We also have our own, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, our, our own electrical grid. I don't know why I brain farted there a second. So there's three electrical grids in the United States. There's the eastern grid, there's the western grid. And those two grids do all the rest of the states in the continental United States. And then Texas has its own power grid. I think there's a little tiny piece of West Texas that's on the western grid near the area they call the Four Corners, which is uh, Texas, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, I think. Uh, so right there's a little sliver, a few people live that are on that other grid. But overall, the rest of the state, we produce our own electricity and Uh, that has certain advantages if a state ever does decide that it no longer wants to be part of the union. There is actually a fairly strong movement for Texas independence um, and not in a hostile way toward the union, just in a, hey, since you guys don't understand what federalism is supposed to be and what republicanism is supposed to be and how limited your power is supposed to be, how about we just step off as our own country And we'll act like the states were originally supposed to act within the country. That's kind of the attitude towards secession here. It's not a radical idea at all. As big a state as we are, we only have one natural lake, Caddo Lake. This is out by the Louisiana border. Um, there is no other natural lakes in the state of Texas. They were all created by damming rivers. And that's kind of a, a thing that, you know, Texas really didn't come into its own Uh, from a standpoint of population, also two things happened. One is we got really good at creating water supplies for large cities using rivers and creating dams because you can't have six of the largest cities in the country uh, in a place with no water to give them water. And then the other thing was old Dr. Carrier and vent and air conditioning. Uh, this place was considered uh, not a place you wanted to be uh, before the advent of electricity. Um, there was one guy, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the uh, folks who was not soon after the Civil War, I believe, uh, came down here to Texas. And when he was asked about it when he went home, he said that he, he would prefer hell to Texas for living conditions as far as heat went. People really think of us as cattle country. And uh, they think of cattle country, they think of the big cities like Dallas, or they think of desert. And there is a lot of desert in Texas, but there's also a lot of farmland. Uh, we have more land farmed in Texas than any other state. We also have more bats than any other state. So there's, there's, it, it, it's an interesting place. Uh, the Heisman Trophy is named for uh, John William Heisman. He was the uh, first full-time coach and athletic director at Rice University in Houston. Uh, it, it's a... It's an interesting state. There's so much to it. Uh, from a wildlife standpoint, we have a deer population that's almost more, I think, than the human population. Um, we have bobcats. We have mountain lions. 
we have alligators. Um, as far as uh, venomous snakes, there are four venomous snakes that exist in the United States. Now, there's subspecies of them, like there's something like 23 subspecies of rattlesnakes, but you've got copperheads, you got water moccasins, you got coral snakes, and you got rattlesnakes. We have them all. We've got all, all the venomous reptiles we know what to do with. We also have the venomous lizard known as the Gila monster and the beaded lizard. So we got both of those as well. We've got scorpions. We've got an amazing bird population. I can't remember the name of the town. There's a town in Texas that's known as basically the bird, bird lovers or bird watchers paradise. It's, it's, it's just a, a wonderful place to live. As a person that's lived here for a long time, I can tell you the only thing that I do not like about Texas is the heat. That is that is the only downside to me. If if we could just re-annex part of you know Wyoming and Montana, maybe then I'd have a place to go skiing. I'd be all about this uh, Texas independence movement at that point. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the best I could do. It was an odd question. But I hope I hope it was entertaining for folks and. Uh, I would love to see that. I think that'd be a. If none else came out of this. The homeschoolers doing a, and maybe you guys get together in the forum or the Facebook group or something and do as a joint project, uh, emulating how scientific studies are done. What is the correlation between freedom in homeschooling and freedom in general by a state? Because freedom in homeschooling first needs to be defined so that you can rank the states in order, and you can take studies other people have done, but I think you'll find if you find multiple groups, they'll have multiple opinions, and how do you, how do you, how do you aggregate the data and average it out and come up with that list, and then how, you, how do you define and aggregate the data for freedom as a, in general, and what is the correlation between the two, because I think it would be high. I don't know that, but I think it would be high. With that, let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Dan from North Lake Texoma in Oklahoma. I'm just calling with an opportunity for people to share what freedom should look like and what personal and government oppression does look like. Uh, China Muslim crackdown reaches abroad. Uh, the Chinese government is using um, it's using force against their citizens that have moved abroad to countries like the United States. Great Britain, Norway, and they are literally detaining people uh, that stay behind if their family members abroad don't come back to quote unquote sort things out. And uh, a lot when when we uh, when we are talking about things that happen in the United States, a lot of people would think that oh that's crazy. You know, you're, you're just saying things. Well, uh, here are some real world examples of a group of people getting oppressed just because a slight minority of them are doing some things here or there and what it could look like if this country actually starts using its might the way it should. Thanks for your time. I, I did, in full disclosure, remove some of the parts of that call that kind of made what was a little discombobulated worse. Uh, I did manage to find the story in the Wall Street Journal that this gentleman's talking about, and here's the gist of it as I got it. So there's a specific subgroup of uh, ethnic minority Muslim in China, and an ethnic minority in China is a lot of people, because you're talking a minority in a place with almost 2 billion people. And some of these people have left the country, and they're living in places like Europe, etc., 
and they're being told either to turn over their, their, their documents for travel or to return to the country and being threatened that if they don't, for instance, your father might just end up in a re-education facility, which China claims they don't have re-education facilities. They have places for minor offenders to get you know, re-educated, but it's not re-education. It's for vocational training and stuff like that. Um, this is a tactic that's used far more brutally by the North Koreans, uh, where if somebody does flee across the Yellow River or somehow makes it into South Korea, they'll take their whole family and throw them into one of their camps there, which are far worse than what the Chinese have. Um, and this is an example of a state going after uh, a person that has exceeded its, its reach. And when people say that, you know, we don't do stuff like that, okay, Julian Assange... You know, I mean, really, like, there, there is a point where if, if a state really believes that people have rights and sovereignty, that if that person leaves, if they're not causing any trouble, you leave them alone. And you might make the case to me that Assange is causing trouble, but no more than any other journalist that just happens to have good sources does. Um, this is something that I think we need to be worried about our country doing, but maybe not so much chasing people that leave. The one thing that this country's got going for it is there's not a lot of better places to be. Well, there really aren't, but, you know, not like that change, but it, it is very much the case that I think you could see re-education centers, they don't call re-education centers. If we keep going down this road of political correct bullshit, where everything's hate speech and everything's horrible and everything's a bigot and everything's a racist and everything you don't like is a Nazi. And we go that long and that, down that road long enough. One of the dangers of everything's a cycle is sooner or later the cycle cycles. And there will come a day in this country when we do not have majorities of the right in place. And the right has its sins. This is not an abdication of the right sins. But one thing the right is not doing right now is telling people what they can say and what they can think and screaming that everything that they don't like that they hear is racist and bigoted and Nazi or any other set of words. And if the people that are screaming that stuff end up in charge, I can see where you end up with something similar to what's going on in Canada now, where, no, you don't get locked up and sent to a re-education center. You have to go through a state-approved training program so you can understand what you were doing was wrong. And while you're going through it, we have to supervise you, so you have to be in this place, but it's not a re-education center. So the thing is that people always think things like Nazi Germany, like they do this, this disservice to us, I think, when they show war uh, movies, like they, if they, they, they make a movie based around Nazi Germany in, 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 you know, during the World War II period, they might show like the officers at a bar having a good time or something like that, but in general when they show the people, all the people are miserable, the sun never shines, it's dark and gray and dusty. Berlin, other than getting bombs dropped on it, was a pretty happening place to live during World War II. It looked shiny. The tyranny of the state doesn't always look gray. It often looks really shiny. If you look at 1984, the movie, that's a perfect example of a dystopian movie that I get it to set the mood. Everything was muddy and dank and dark. And, but the ultimate goal of the state is shiny, 
totalitarianism with an iron fist coated in a velvet glove. Because then you can get a large portion of the people to go along without being threatened, and you, 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 you just kind of hold up the velvet-coated steel glove every once in a while to remind them to stay happy. And you only smash those who oppose you. And the softer you can smash them in the eyes of the people that don't get it's being smashed, the more they think that you're good. And I do think that we have a propensity or a possibility right now in this country going the wrong damn way with this in a hard way. My faith is that the people of this country won't let it happen. But daily I see things that test my faith. I'll put it to you that way. Anyway, let's take another one. Jack, you're a jerk. Details. Since listening to your podcast over the last eight years, I've really changed the way that I look at life and the way I'm doing things. I'm a salesman, and I enjoy what I do and have zero desire to own my own business. But what I've realized because of listening to you is that I am a, I'm a hunter that can farm. I got that from you, and it makes complete sense. And since I heard that a few months back, I've realized that I'm doing more to give myself a raise than any boss in the past could have done. Also, along with this, what I've done is I've gotten a side hustle. And because of that side hustle, my 15-year mortgage should be paid off in less than six years. However, this side hustle has allowed me to pay, to make even more payment on my house. So if I continue to make more than a double payment, I will have a 15-year mortgage paid off in just over four years. Thanks for what you do, but Jack, you're a jerk. You know, guys, I love the Jack, you're a jerk phone calls. I, uh, I, I had a, another one this week. I, I wanted to play it, but the guy called back like a day later, so please don't play that. I was way too harsh toward my former employer. <laughs> and I, was, I, I had to laugh at that one. I, I wanted to just address um, the phrase he used, uh, a hunter that can farm as a salesperson, because I think this is really important when it comes to understanding how to build a business or to build uh, a book of business as a salesperson, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or you like working for somebody else and you want to have an incentive-based compensation plan, sales is the way to go. So what I mean by that is, in general, salespeople come in two sorts of types. Um, a hunter is your guy that goes out and slays the dragons. He's your 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 closer that goes out and and gets gets new business. That's what he does. He goes out, he cold calls, he finds people, he gets referrals, does whatever it is, and he gets that new customer, and he convinces them that his company is the way to go, and he throws them over the fence, and then the company takes care of them. And he goes out and gets another one, and he goes and gets another one, and he goes and gets another one. And then you get your farmers. Your farmers are more your account managers, They're the people that sometimes I refer to them as inside sales. It's a huge mistake because an inside salesperson and a good salesperson that is an account manager type are different. Uh, an inside salesperson really should be attached to an outside salesperson. An outside salesperson can be a farmer type or a hunter type. So your inside salesperson is kind of like your sales personal assistant. Uh, they might make a few phone calls while you're traveling and you don't have time to and see if, like, you're, hey, I'm going to be up in Boston. 
You know, see if there's anything you can do to get us in another place up there. And they might make some cold calls and get you in the door. When you got something going on and you need a proposal, they'll, they'll maybe you flip the proposal over to them and say, I don't have time to check all the I's and dot all the T's and all that stuff. So uh, let, let's let's get that done. You said it wrong. That's why I'm sending it to you, right? And they do that kind of work. And, and uh, they might uh, be in touch with your distributors and things like that for you. Uh, so that's that's inside sales to me. And then, again, you have this outside sales force that you either have an account management type position or a hunting new business acquisition. And the way to be is the farming hunter. When you get that new account, and this is why you want to work for a company that understands that that's, you don't, they don't take that account away from you. You do all the nurturing and love and donut handing off or whatever you got to do to, to, to nurture that account, to build that account, to develop it, and to get more business out of it. Because that's what you put an account manager in place to do. We already have this big, giant company as, as a customer, but we only do half a million dollars a year with them. And the sector we're in, they're doing $200 million worth of business. There's got to be something more there. Let's go find out where else in that company we can be. That's your farming. You're not just maintaining what you have. You're growing new crops. And you the and the hunter is the guy that you know you say hey look that company over there they're doing two hundred million dollars a year in our sector we don't do any business with them all go get us in the door and in general people that can sell they 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 gravitate toward one of those and part of it you know I'm a good hunter right when it comes to sales. Because I like the challenge. I like being told, we don't talk to salespeople. Gee, I'm not a salesperson, so I guess you talk to me. I mean, I'm that guy. I'll do that shit to you. Um, I'll call up and tell the guy that it's his cousin Jack. And when they say, really? Yeah. And they'll put me through. And the guy'll say, I don't have a cousin Jack. No, everybody just calls me that. My name's Jack. I mean, I'll do that to get through that decision maker and make that first contact and get on and off the phone with him in 90 seconds. The next thing you know, he agreed to see me for 15 minutes next month. I, I used to really like doing that. And it's the disorganized, chaotic person who's impulsive that's good at that. You're fast on your feet. You don't need a full plan when you go in. You know your stuff, and you don't know what he's going to do. So you know if you have a plan, it's not going to survive. You know your battle plan will not survive contact with the enemy anyway. The management requires much more of a detailed person. That's why I've loved having an inside salesperson to help with that in the management role. But if you if you want to be in sales and you can master servicing your accounts as a manager, using those people, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I hate to say using people, but it, it's what you're doing. But you know, using someone's not always bad. Using someone with no concern for them is bad. That's, that's bad. But what you're doing is you're using that relationship to find other people that you can help. That's a good salesperson. It's not just trying to sell a product. I want to meet people that need what I have. So when you know engineers, for instance, that work at a company like Alcatel, they probably somewhere in their lives have crossed paths with an engineer that works at Lucent. And when you're trying to get into Lucent, if there's still a thing, you can get in there through Alcatel if you know the right people and if those people trust you and are willing to hand that, that information off to you. So that's the hunter farmer thing put together as far as being a jerk makes me happy again if you have a jack ear jerk call I'd love to hear it uh said if you just told me 10 years ago one day you'll have a business and people will call you and tell you you're a jerk and it'll make you happy and, and not in some 
you know, weird, perverse way or something like, you're a jerk, I hate you, now you're president. Ah, good, now you have to listen to me. You know, like, if I, <laughs> I don't think I would even believe that, but if you would have told me that this would be a thing, I, I would have never believed it. Now it is a thing. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hi, Jack. Question. With the current market and looming shift coming, would it be wise to move out of paper, gold, and silver into cryptos? Details. About a year ago, I moved my IRA of mutual funds into gold and silver ETFs, wanting to get out of the market, thinking it would be a good way to get metal exposure with little effort. But lately, I've been picking up that paper, gold, and silver is just as precarious and made me think it would be a good time to try the cryptocurrencies, which have had such a tumble lately. I already have physical metals. So would moving some assets into cryptos be a good way to diversify and be protected from the stock market correction? Would love to hear your take on this matter. Thanks. Okay, so you pulled out of the market about a year ago. I wish you would have called in a year ago and asked me if you should be pulling out of the market because I probably would have told you no. Um, it's been a pretty good time to be in the market. There's been a little bit of correction here and there, but overall it's been a, a really great trend over the year. Um And right now, I'm not running from the market. I am really paying attention to the market. And the reason I'm doing that is that everything's a cycle. And when the markets are at all-time highs, there's always a potential for major correction. However, to reach new all-time highs, markets have to go through and past those all-time highs to get higher. Now, the thing is, we're a lot higher than... We were a few years ago, so we're not just at an all-time high. We're on one of the longest bull runs, and it just seems like because cycle, cycle, there has to be a correction in the works. However, we're not seeing the indicators of that. I mean, the only way you get a correction right now is something major goes kerfunkle in the world. Or, I don't know, you get a big enough Trump scandal where they really do think he's going to be impeached. That would probably hurt the market. Um, or investors just say, it's too high and I'm taking all my profits. And not just some institutional profit taking, like major across the board, like everybody just gets scared for some reason. Um, there's not a fundamental in place right now that I see as having the capacity to bring down the market. Um, the biggest debt that I'm concerned about right now is student loan debt, and that's government-backed. And can it create a crisis? Not only do I think it can, I think it will, but it will not create an overnight crisis. Um, the real estate, I think we're we're heading for another real estate bubble pop. It's just I don't see it in the next year. Uh, I think I'm starting to see lending practices get almost as bad as they were, so you're probably a few years out from that at least. Um, you're not going to have really bad jobs numbers. Okay, so we might not have jobs that we might be spoiled and they're not as good as we expect them to be next quarter, but they're not going to be bad. So I just don't see a major correction, and there's a potential for still a lot of upside. So we're on kind of a we're we're watching the pot and make sure it doesn't boil over or fall off the stove right now. That type of thing on the market on on gold and silver uh, and ETFs. If you're comfortable holding gold and silver, I don't have any problem holding ETFs. The only way you're going to have a real problem with a gold or silver ETF is to have a catastrophic crash of the market to where they've created more derivative silver and gold and paper than they can cover. And that is true, 
but these instruments are stable. People were screaming and yelling that they were you were going to you know see this happen 15 years ago, and it's been 15 years of it's just fine. This is we know how to run an ETF. So I wouldn't get out of the ETFs unless you want to be out of gold and silver right now. You'd have to take a look at your positions. Um, are you happy with the gains or willing to accept the losses that you've incurred? And do you want to move out of those positions because you want to move out of the position of silver and gold? Taking into account how much physical metal you have, therefore, i.e., how much paper, silver, and gold do I really want, I think is a completely legitimate thing. And I believe that the purpose of silver and gold ETFs are you spot an opportunity and you want an immediately liquid, exchangeable investment so that if I look at silver, for some reason it drops down to 7 bucks, and I got 10 grand sitting around that I don't have allocated anything, I go, that's, that's, that is a safe floor, and I think silver is going to go back up to 20 bucks. And the only reason I'm buying that silver is because when it goes to 20 bucks, I'm selling it. Because I've got my other long-term forever silver that's going to my grandkids and my great-grandkids. I'm not worried about that, but I see like an opportunity. That's what that ETF is for, in my opinion. It's a short-term trading instrument or a, a short-term security blanket to run to. If you want to, I want, for whatever reason, in the next quarter, I want 10% of my money in silver and gold as a hedge. Now, as far as protecting ourselves from losses in the stock market, Diversity is great, but that's not how we protect ourselves from losses in the stock market. We protect ourselves from losses in the stock market by paying attention and exiting positions in the stock market when the upside is no longer worth the risk. Okay, so do what you want with that on cryptocurrency. I'm going to tell you that in January I said a bloodbath is coming. It did. It's way worse than I ever thought it would be. I never thought I'd see Ether. Under 500 bucks. I never thought I'd see Bitcoin under 7,500 bucks. I don't know what to do right now. I'll be honest about that, and I'll admit it. I don't know what to do right now. I believe in long term, uh, cryptocurrencies are going to play a role in our world for a very long time. I do not believe that they're going away. I do have to accept something. If Bitcoin stayed where it is right now, or even cut in half and stayed there for another 10 years, it is still a monumental success. Because, again, we're talking about something that started out eight years ago at less than a dollar in value. And its purpose is not an investment instrument. Its purpose is a currency that exists outside of the control of the establishment. That's the purpose of all cryptocurrencies. It's a real, legitimate purpose, to serve the function of a currency that is not manipulated by the central banks which can, can manipulate it by buying and selling it. So it always has that weakness. It can only, and, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody can make some smart algorithm at some point that expands and contracts the, 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 the quantity and therefore the value of a cryptocurrency based on attempted market manipulation. Some technology guy, some math genius may figure out how to do that, but they ain't done it yet. So we have to remember, that's what cryptocurrency is. I do not put money into cryptocurrency for safekeeping. And that sounds like what you're saying. I put money into cryptocurrency for speculation or because I want some in there to use it as cryptocurrency. I have been it's been easy for me to watch this bloodbath. My average price paid on bitcoins is under $300. My average price paid on ethereum is under $10. 
So it's it doesn't hurt me as bad as it probably hurt some of y'all that jumped in during the big run-up. Also, I've earned most of my cryptocurrency. I've bought a lot less than I've either earned or mined, and that makes it easier on you when it flies all around. And we got to see. That. So I don't know what this is going to look like in two years. I do know this: the one thing I've said that I'm a hundred percent confident in when it comes to crypto, the garbage is done. It's not coming back. Only the real projects with real legs are going to come back. And even some of those may not, because the project may not really be dependent on the currency. The, 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 all the wonderful stuff that a company's doing under the, the badge of a cryptocurrency may not need that particular cryptocurrency for its project to have value. It may be some derivative of that currency that gets used. Or it may be Bitcoin that gets used on that platform. Maybe Ethereum that gets used on that platform. We don't really know. So it's a speculative investment. My view, and I've said this from the days I started talking about cryptocurrency, everybody should have some. If the money is not money you would lay down on a blackjack table, don't put it in cryptocurrency. Get a couple hundred bucks, go buy something with it. Learn how it works. Set up a wallet. Move it around. Spend a few bucks in fees. As we have my granddaughter, apparently disagrees with me back there. But spend a few bucks in fees to learn how it works, to become familiar with it, to get out and use it. Now, again, I am back to on something like Bitcoin. Right now, I believe the powers that be have they've backed off on the straightforward attack. When they did that, they made everything worse for themselves. Everything they said blew up in their face. Now they're doing the passive aggressive attack. Now they're linking. Well, we, you know, we, 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 we might start letting um, cryptocurrencies go into ETFs where they can, can be used by retirement accounts. In fact, we're really pretty sure that in September we're going to do that. Hmm. And then, you know, everybody starts buying in again, and that trade volume goes up, and that price per unit goes up, and then they go, yeah, no, we're not going to do that, and they're doing that absolutely on purpose. Absolutely on purpose. But sooner or later, I think, the people inside the financial institutions that, that are doing this are going to be so consumed by greed for what they can get out of letting it in, they're going to. Now, right now, if you're a trader, this is this is a like everybody was excited when crypto kept going up, 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 up. Well, the thing about that is there's not a lot of trading opportunity when that's going on. As you buy and hold, you don't want to sell because it's going to go up higher. It's been ping-ponging back and forth, 2, 3, 4, 7% a day. You know, if you can make 3% on your money a day, you can make a little money into a lot of money really, really quick with compounding. So this has been a trader's dream, but tr trading and holding and investing are different. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say Don't go putting the silver and gold money into an ETF uh, in the market. Don't go putting it into cryptocurrency. The fact that you're asking me means you're not sure why you're doing what you're doing yet. I think you need to do a, a, a fundamental analysis of what you're doing. And I think silver and gold, again, I think, I'm not a financial advisor, are fairly stable in the short term. If you're really unsure, go to cash. It ain't going to burn a hole in your pocket. It's okay. The end of the world's not coming tomorrow. 
and maybe take a piece of this and, and invest in some cryptocurrency. If and I'll, you know this would like if I was your financial advisor, you know, and I'm not anybody's, but if I was, this would have a lot to do with what percentage of that money is it to your total. If it's one percent of all your investments, go ahead, buy whatever you want. I don't care. If it's ten, we got to think about this. If it's fifty percent of your investment portfolio, do not put that shit in the crypto. If you wouldn't put it on the blackjack table, all right. So hopefully that makes sense. Let's take another one. Hi Jack, it's Garrett from the Hudson Valley of New York. I have a quick question for you or the expert counsel on livestock guardian dogs. The question is, can two male dogs share the same doghouse? Details. I have two great Pyrenees dogs. They're both uh, 11 months old. They have both been neutered, and they get along great 99% of the time, and they're great family dogs as well as very effective livestock guardian dogs. However, the one issue I've been having with them lately is that one male dog keeps the other male dog from the doghouse. Most of the time, this is not a problem, but with winter approaching and during severe storms, the dogs obviously need some place to get shelter. I'm wondering if there's some way uh, that I can train the dogs to overcome this issue, or do I actually need to build another doghouse? Uh, the doghouse, by the way, is four by eight. It's covered on three and a half sides. Um, most of the time, it's okay for the dogs, but uh, increasingly, one dog will not let the other dog in, even in severe weather. Your thoughts on this would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Okay, so you can neuter males all you want. That does change their temperament. You can raise them together as puppies. And it, when it comes to dogs, and ain't just males and males. It can be males and females. It doesn't matter. It's, and it depends what's the personality traits, how assertive, how beta is one, how alpha is the other. All of this stuff just springs to mind. I will not, if I would not, if I were you, attempt to force this issue and cause those two animals to have to come to terms with occupying the same confined space. You're going to get one of two things. One of those dogs is not going to get out of the elements. He's going to be beta enough not to do it, and he's going to have issues from being out in the cold. And if you, it sounds like you live in a fairly cold climate um, where those dogs probably do need to be indoors. Or he's going to get tired of this, and he's going to stand up to the other dog, and then they're going to fight. And they're not going to fight the way you and your friends did when you were teenagers and you were playing around. They're dogs. They have teeth. They're going to fight. There's a... A thing inside of them. And <clears throat> this is especially a dangerous situation. If one has been the alpha and accepted as the alpha, and when he lays down the law, the other dog says, no, I'm not letting you. That's That goes to a place in the canine brain that says, okay, it's on, bitch. I'm serious. And that's it's it, it can get nasty. Dogs that have gotten along their whole life, one dog can really mess the other dog up or kill the other dog even. And then the relationship may or may not, assuming the one dog doesn't kill the other dog, the relationship may go back to a pack with just a further acceptance of the dominance of the winner, or it may be ruined. And I'm not going to risk this. Now, I'm going to give you an abundantly simple solution, and it may not be as easy to do as I'm thinking, But you may kick yourself. You got a four foot by eight foot box for two great Pyrenees. 
There's no doubt that that's big enough for two dogs. What if you took the roof off the doghouse, put a wall in it, so it was two four-by-four-foot sections, put the roof back on, cut a hole in the other side, so the two dogs have a side they can both go into and can't see each other. To me, that would be less of an expense and less trouble and keep them together but yet separated. And if you do it right, what I would do, for instance, is I would probably make that wall stop short of going all the way to the roof. And what that's going to do is it's going to let the warmth of those two dogs kind of co-mingle. And so you still have two dogs, their body heat being shared, warming the area. So, I mean, that's what I would do. Or, yeah, build another doghouse. I mean, again, it's a box in the end, right? But, I mean, when I built my dogs a doghouse up in Arkansas, it was pretty nice. I did two pieces of plywood sandwiching uh, insulated foam board and then a metal roof, and it was a really nice doghouse. And it wasn't quite as big as yours, and my two dogs would share it. I had a shepherd and a black lab. I had a, My shepherd I still have named Max and my black lab named Ma uh, Blackie. And they had a little bit of conflict when, when Max first came into the house, but Max was a lot bigger than Blackie. And Blackie was kind of an old man. And one day they threw down. And it wasn't a bloody throwdown. Max is such a disciplined animal. He basically barrel chested him to the ground and did like that bark, 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 like you're going to tear, like they're going to tear something apart, teeth in the face. And it was the last time Blackie stood up to him. His ears folded down, and it was done. And he wasn't going to challenge him ever again. And there was never a conflict between the two dogs ever again. And so much so that when we would we would go away, and I had to board them, I would I would have them co-kenneled. So they would sit in a kennel, they would eat together, etc. My dogs now, Max still around, Charlie and Lucy, they get along just fine. I would put Lucy in a kennel with Max. I would not put Charlie in a kennel with Max or Lucy because I believe in that confined state over a number of days being stressed, he's going to lose his shit and he's going to do real harm to the other dog. I know what the dog's capable of. And I'm not going to set him up for failure. You always With dogs, you always want to set your dogs up for success. That's like, how do I get the dog to do this? Set them up to succeed at it, and they will. So these dogs have determined amongst themselves, and you don't get to play, especially livestock guardian dogs, they're more removed from your family than any other dog. They are bonded to your flock, not to your family. And they have decided amongst themselves that we do not, co we do not cohabitate. We can play, we can watch the animals together, we can hang out, we don't share a bedroom. You don't get to change that. Nothing you do is going to change that. And if it is, you're rolling the dice, and basically you're playing seven come eleven, right? If you if you roll a seven and eleven back to back, you win, and the dogs figure it out and work it out. You roll anything else, you end up with anything from a bloody dog to a dead dog. So either make a second house or subdivide the house. They, they don't really need a separate house. They need separate rooms with separate entries. It's like two stepbrothers or even just two brothers. They can play all day, but when they go back to the room, these two anyway, they can't share bunk beds. 
They each need a room with their own door, and they'll be fine. And I think that that's a piece of plywood, and you're done. That's what I would do. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. So St. Louis uh, Circuit Attorney, her name is Kim Gardner, has published uh, put out a list of 28 police officers. And if any of these 28 police officers were involved in any arrest, those crimes will not be prosecuted. What? What kind of precedent does this set for the rest of the country? The sort of stupidity that's happening in this country is just blowing my mind. There's been uh, no evidence that uh, Internal Affairs has done any investigations. This prosecutor just made a list and said, I'm not going to prosecute cases if any of these cops were involved. I don't understand this. Maybe you can... I don't know. I don't know if you don't understand it either. It's completely retarded in my opinion, but I wanted your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so I hadn't heard about this because I went out and checked the temperature to water my pool. It didn't change, so what somebody's doing in St. Louis really isn't something I spent a lot of time on, unless it's brought to my attention, in which case it was. And I decided this was worthy of investigating, cursory investigation anyway. Apparently this lady uh, has had calls for her to be investigated for a long time. Um, there is some class between her and the state attorney general's office and the police department as a whole. Um However, what you said is not a lie, but it's also not the truth. It's true that Internal Affairs isn't investigating any of these officers. It's not true that the prosecutor's office doesn't have any reason to have a problem with them. Um, I, I found an article. I linked it. I'm not going to read it because I don't want to bore anybody. But the basic synopsis is this. First of all, what you said is untrue. I'm not going to call it a lie because I think you believed it, so it's not a lie. It's just it's inaccurate. Um, she did not say that they would not prosecute anybody uh, in any situation where one of those officers was involved in their arrest. That's not what she said. Um, and I read the actual stuff that came from her office to the, to the chief of police and their warrant officer and other stuff like that. What she said was, that these officers on this list, if their participation would be required to prosecute, they would not pursue prosecution. In other words, if five officers show up at a place, they bust a crack house, somebody runs out, officer so-and-so that's on the list grabs them, but they can prosecute the case based on the fact that these guys are apprehended here and here's the evidence, and they don't need that cop to come into the courtroom and testify or they're not relying on evidence that he specifically gathered. They, they, since, and that's why you tell them, hey, if you're there, and they say, go go in there and book that evidence. No, you don't do it. You say, hey, no, 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 I can't do it until we work this out. You go do it. You're not on the list. As long as they can prosecute the case just because the guy was involved does not mean it would not be prosecuted. Now, why would you do that? Okay, I'm going to put it to you in a whole, and I'm not, I'm not taking up for this lady. I'm sure we disagree on far more than we agree upon. But there is problems with corruption within various police forces at various levels throughout the United States. Not all of them. You can give me the few bad apples thing. I don't want to lose my shit and snap out over it because you can't afford to have a few bad apples when those bad apples can shoot people and taste people and spray them in the face and get them bit by dogs. You can't afford any. And there's more than a few. Okay, But I will go along with the majority theory. The majority are not them. Okay, Well, this is like 2% of their police force. That's not the majority now, is it? Okay, so there's, And I'm going to say that 10% is my threshold number for the average number of scumbags in anything. Priests, uh, 
I don't know, teachers. Like, I think in general, 10% of society are scum. And that, so you're going to have 2% to 3% even when filtered. You try to filter the scum out, something's going to get in. Now, are these officers all scum? I don't know. I will tell you their commonalities. All of them were in some way involved with officer-involved shootings and are either unwilling to testify or will testify only under uh, the guarantee of immunity. So guys involved in an officer-involved shooting, he's not the one that shot the guy, but he's going to be called on to testify either in trial against the person that was shot or the police officer that did the shooting, and he says, well, I'll testify, but only if you grant me immunity from prosecution. What? I'm sorry. That's not a thing. That That's not a thing to me because you were there and you were involved. Immunity is something that, like, this guy we want to get did something really, really bad, and you did something little bad involved with it, and we're willing to look the other way on that. Or you did something really, really bad, too. We want him more than you. Generally speaking, when you ask for immunity, you're asking to get out. You did something. Now, I, I want to spin this before I come down on how I see this as being potentially valid. Not valid, potentially valid. Imagine that you were a doctor and you were a heart surgeon. And they say, we want you to perform a heart transplant on patient XYZ. And you say, well, that's what I do. I'm the best transplant doctor there is. And they say, well, we're going to be using a heart from a, a baboon. Wait a minute. I'm not so sure about this. Oh, by the way, the baboon, baboon died like four days ago in the middle of the jungle, but it's the only heart we have. It kind of smells bad. And there's flies on it. You're going to be like, I'm not doing the surgery because the guy's going to die on my table. I'm not, you know, totally risk adverse, but you've put me, and I'm going to the extreme to make a point. You've put me in a position where I know I'm going to kill my patient. Even if he needs a heart transplant, he's better off waiting for another heart or trying a different treatment or living the life. You know, what if they, somebody comes to you and says, I want you to operate on this patient to have cancer. And you, and you as, a, as a, a surgical oncologist, you look at it and you go, holy, there's, I, I, I can't save his life. I'm going to make the last week he has completely miserable. I'm going to fail. So I'm not going to take, I'm not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I have Officer Peabody. Let's give him a name. And Officer Peabody uh, was involved recently in an officer-involved shooting, and he has requested from the prosecutor who is prosecuting the case in front of me, and I'm a juror, by the way, and he is requesting from her immunity for his involvement in that shooting. But he's testifying that he's telling the truth when he says he found pot or coke or whatever at this guy's house over here. You don't think that defense attorney is going to go, hey, Officer Peabody, are you currently under uh, scrutiny from the very same prosecutor that's prosecuting my client? Can you tell me the nature of that? Hmm. So you were there when Officer X-Body shot him, right, Officer Peabody? You can't lie. You can decline to answer. By the way, some of the other officers, they had refused to answer and taken the Fifth Amendment in cases with officer-involved shootings. Now, I'm not opposed to taking the Fifth Amendment, but if if I'm a defense attorney, 
Officer Peabody, why, why did you refuse to give testimony in regard to this where your fellow officer shot somebody or where you shot somebody? And now we're supposed to believe that my client, who has maintained his innocence this entire time, it's between you and him? You've got these other things. Do you see what I'm saying? As a prosecutor, I don't want to be hamstrung with that weakness in my case against the defendant. So it's not like, hey, I'm not going to prosecute. Uh, I'm going to go let all the people that you put in jail in the last five years go. Oh, by the way, though, we may have a problem. Now, trust me, if I'm your attorney and the cop that put you in jail goes down as a dirty cop and I'm in the appeals process, don't think I'm not going back and trying to say, hey, hey, hold, hold, hold on. Hold on. This information that was put in this case was by this police officer who now is a known liar. See, this is why this is another big this is where this whole thing with cops protecting each other, this shit's gotta stop. Because and it's but it's also why they do it to a degree. Because they know this can happen. If you are shown to be dirty, if you're caught tampering with or planting evidence, then it is a reasonable question. Is this the only time you did it? How many times did you do it? Why did you do it in the first place? Did you do it on your own? Are you involved with somebody else that's been doing it? Are you doing it to hurt this one person? Are you doing it because you don't like black people? Are you doing it because you don't like Mexican people? Are you doing it because you don't like white people? Are you doing it because you don't like men? Are you doing it because you don't like women? Every single one of those questions, if it relates to the situation, is a reasonably legitimate question if the person really is dirty. As far as but internal affairs is in investigating them, all I can see, I'm sorry, is the meme that has the two guys from Goodfellas just laughing their ass off. You know the scene I'm talking about. And it says, we've investigated ourselves and determined we didn't do anything wrong. So if I am a prosecutor... And I have a problem with police officers hiding excessive use of force, excessive use of violence, officer-involved shootings not getting the full story, and I don't believe I'm getting the full story. What recourse do I have? The one thing I get to decide is when I prosecute a case. No, no police chief, no officer, no one can come forward and say, prosecutor, thou shall take this case and thou shall prosecute it. No, I get to decide that. That's my one real leverage point. So I'm not necessarily defending this lady. I'm just saying the way you called it in, that's not what I see when I look at the issue and I actually dissect it and pull it apart. Now, if I if the water in my pool started to get a little colder than I think it should be in September, and this started to seem like something that was a little bit more important to me personally, I might dig further and agree that this is wrong or prove that this is right. But that's not up to me. That's up to people that decide this is their fight. This is a problem for people in St. Louis and the state of Missouri. This is your fight. I have my own prosecutors to worry about in the state of Texas. On that note, you tell me there's not a problem within our police force. We have a situation in, in, in Dallas right now. A police officer for the city of Dallas came home to her apartment. They have a parking garage that, like, if you park on the third floor, you walk into the third floor of the building. You park on the fourth floor, you walk into the fourth floor of the building. Sounds like a pretty decent place. Well, she comes home. She's on the fourth floor and thinks it's the third, or third and thinks it's the fourth, something like that. This is her story, anyway. She goes to her apartment that's not her apartment. She 
goes to open the door and her key doesn't work. And it's not a typical key. It's like this kind of like computer key. Looks almost like the key that they had in uh, the movie uh, Da Vinci Code. Like a, it's like a long, like slotted, not slotted, but like a solid key thing. Sticks it in there. Said so the key doesn't work, but then notices the door is ajar. She goes into the apartment, which is laid out exactly like her own, and even has kind of furniture laid out exactly like her own. There's a guy in the house. She gives him orders. He doesn't comply with the orders. She shoots him and kills him. Guess what? It's his freaking apartment. Yeah, she went into his apartment and shot him in his own apartment. She's currently under uh, charges of manslaughter, which you bet as soon as the, the heat on this goes down, they may try to plea bargain it to even lesser uh, charges uh, or officer offer her, if you accept the charge of manslaughter, the minimum, if something like they'll avoid a trial. Uh, she's likely to go to trial because she's frankly likely to win, even though she's clearly wrong because... If you can if you can stand on the whole thing of I didn't know you know and and he didn't comply and I am a cop and I'm not sure if she was in uniform or not I that that while it shouldn't matter it could um, she shot this man in his own home and parts of her story don't seem to add up right now like people said they heard her saying let me in let me in. So the whole that the door was ajar, see, that's a natural lie for that lady to tell. If she says the door never opened and she demanded to be let in and the guy opened the door, somehow she got the door open, that's an aggravating circumstance in legal language. If the door was left open and when she went to open her key didn't work, but like, oh, she just opened the door and there's this guy in her apartment who probably got in there by breaking in in her mind. That's what we call a mitigating circumstance. Do you know what the police department did after they, they murdered this guy? This, their, one of their fellow officers murdered this guy. And I'm sorry, it's murder. She went in and killed the guy in his own home. There's no, if I did this and quit, well, I thought it was my apartment. I would not be out on bond right now. She is. And I would probably be looking at a, a like a, a second or third degree murder charge, not a manslaughter charge, that they made that decision almost immediately. Well, they went in and they looked for narcotics in this guy's house. And I know what was going on. It was, if we can find dope, and he was on dope, we could say that this caused confusion during, and he's not. So they tried to vilify this guy after their officer went in and killed him off duty in his own house. There's a problem. And again, I bet you there's a lot of things that this lady and I disagree with, but if she genuinely is attempting to do something about the problem to bring light to it, because if I have a problem and I can't prosecute you as, a, as an officer, but I believe that you did what you weren't supposed to do, and I believe you're a risk going forward, I believe you're a risk not only to the people on the streets, but I believe that you are a risk to future convictions, and to overturning past convictions and freeing people that actually belong in jail, what am I supposed to do? I'm not going to write a letter to your union. They're not going to care. But this is the thing that that lady can do. Is she right or wrong? I don't know. But I'm not ready to just say, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Because in a lot of ways, with the limited criteria for selecting these officers, this makes sense. And what she's probably saying is, you know what? 
Maybe you need to get them off the street. Maybe you need to fire them. Maybe you need to put somebody out there to do the job right. Maybe you need to put somebody out there that when somebody gets shot, they're willing to tell me what happened and not ask for immunity before they even tell me anything. Maybe, you know, maybe that's what she's trying to do. Maybe she's just a nut job liberal. I don't know, but it, it doesn't add up that way. It doesn't pass that sniff test as far as I'm looking at it. Those are my thoughts on it. You asked. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support this show is by, um, Joining the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you get exclusive membership not available to anybody but you as a member. And primarily that is in the form of discounts that will pay your membership back to you. And you get to support this show at 18.3 cents an episode. One of the big things that you get as a member, if you want to come to a workshop here, you pretty much got to be a member. That's not a rule, but it's the way that it works out. And what I mean by that is when I put these workshops up for sale, they sell out in like a couple hours. And once they sell out, there's no more tickets, so you can't come. Well, knowing that and wanting to look after my members, I open it up to members first. And then they buy all the, and there ain't any. So if you want to come to the workshop this year, you probably need to be a member. Uh, I want to remind you, we are going to put those tickets on sale the 29th of September at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's a Saturday. I figured to give people the most uh, opportunity. I put up a post today. I want you to take a look at if you're going to be coming uh, or if you know somebody that's going to be coming, you might want them to bring one back to you. We're doing a swag pack. I kind of mentioned it before. Um, I did the stainless steel shot glasses at the 10-year anniversary party. Everybody loved them. Uh, I've got the Val head on the front, a medallion, some ants, and uh, it, it says be an ant, not a grasshopper. On the back, we came up with this really cool 10-year logo, an X like the Super Bowl with TSP in it, established 2008, and it says 10 years of living a better life. So, Uh, the shot glasses have that on the front and back, one each. And then I did some hip flasks uh, for the workshop or for the anniversary party. And they have those those two designs on one side together because there's a lot of design room on the flask that they gave me from the company that's doing them for me. So I was able to put that all together. Those look really awesome. I gave those to select individuals as kind of a thank you for supporting me over the years. They were a big hit. And what I'm adding to it for this workshop this fall is a shaker, like a martini shaker. These are like 26-ounce shakers, and they have that X logo, that TSP 10-year logo established 2008, 10 years of living a better life on them. And uh, they're going to be awesome. And I haven't ordered them yet because I'm waiting to see how many people want them. The way it's going to work when you sign up to come to the workshop, if you want one, you click a box. If you're listening to me and you're coming and you're not going to have to sign up because you're an instructor, a staff member, something like that, and you want one of these, you need to get in touch with me before the 29th and tell me to reserve a set for you uh, because I'm not going to be, they're, they're kind of expensive on my end, so I'm not going to be giving them away. I mean, I'm not going to say one or two might not be given to some special people, but in general, if you're coming, if you want a full set, uh, you're going to need to reserve. So what I'm doing is, first of all, everybody that comes gets a shot glass. If somebody wants a swag pack, you get two of the shot glasses, one of the flasks, and one of the shakers for $50. Bucks. And I'm going to have like $45 bucks into them, into a set. So I'm going to make like $5 bucks on them. I'm doing it really. Now, if enough people do it, I might make $10 bucks a set because I get a price break. But So I just want to let you know that that's out, and they're going to look pretty cool. I'm, I'm not shipping them. You can't get one unless you come here or you know someone that comes here. People that want to buy three or four sets can do it. So I know some of y'all live around other TSPers and stuff. If you're coming and you want to, you know, reserve three or four, as long as you don't, please just please don't leave me holding the bag on this. Like you know, again, it's going to be an, an investment. So um, check that 
that post out. The other way you can support us, by the way, is uh, doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, the item of the day I have for you guys today is the Crossman Nitro Venom Brake Barrel Air Rifle. I brought this around a while ago when it was on sale for 130 bucks. If you didn't get one then, you should have. Someday it might go on sale again. They're about 170 180 bucks, depending on the, the options you pick. But I love this pellet rifle. This is a brake barrel pellet rifle. Um, uses a nitro piston design. It will put um, 177 calibers downrange at 1,000 feet per second and 22 at about 800. And that's not the you know the PBA ammo. This is the standard lead pellets that are, in, in my opinion, probably the way to judge the performance of a gun. So everything's together. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about it because it's been a long show today. I'll just say this. If you're looking for a brake barrel pellet gun, this gun pretty much embarrasses anything under $200 uh, in, in competition. It is that much better. And I would say probably it's about $300 to $350. If you want to do better than this, you're up into like the $350, $450 range, in my opinion, on quality, performance, longevity, etc. So check it out. And remember, if you shop T-SPAS for anything you're buying online, you help support us. It's T-SPAS, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, song of the day today is by Merle Haggard. Uh, and it's called, Are the, Are the Good Times Really Over? And this song came out in uh, 1981. And I, I, I'm going to take a different take with this song that I bet most people would think I would. But many of you, if you're not familiar with the song that I'm talking about right now, might be thinking, I don't know that song. And, and you probably do. Uh, I bet there's a lot of people out there that would think the song is called A Snowball Headed for Hell. Because that's like the most pungent line in the whole song. But I'm going to just read you some of the lyrics like I do once in a while as though it were a poem. I wish a buck was still silver. It was back when the country was strong. Back before Elvis, before the Vietnam War came along. Before the Beatles and yesterday... When a man could still work, still would. Are the best of the free life behind us now? And are the good times really over for good? Are we rolling down a hill like a snowball headed for hell? With no kind of chance for the flag or the Liberty Bell. Wish a Ford and a Chevy could still last ten years like they should. Is it the best of the free life behind us now? Are the good times really over for good? I wish a Coke was still cola and a joint was a bad place to be. It was back before Nixon lied to us all on TV. Before microwave ovens, when a girl could still cook and still would. The best of the free life behind us now are the good times really over for good. And repeating of the chorus and a few of the stanzas there. Um, you can tell it's a pretty pessimistic song. And this was, you know, Ronald Reagan was president when this was released, but he probably wasn't one that was written, and we hadn't had, you know, Reagan's morning in America yet. We hadn't had that optimism of the 80s kick. And a lot of people that are younger than me and younger than y'all that are my age and older, probably, you know, all you ever see of the 80s, if you didn't grow up in them, are the, uh, the CNN flashbacks, which were pretty cool. And they focus a lot on the opulence and the extravagance and the, the party attitude and the, the credit card living of the 80s and, and, and the money and, and the wealth. But the 80s were pretty pessimistic throughout the first half of them, at least. And for people like me that lived in small towns that were pretty depressed anyway, it, it didn't change much. 
Um, so there was that pessimism. But I, I just like to kind of point something out. W wish a Ford and a Chevy could still last 10 years like they should. And if you drove some of those beast low-lead sleds from the 70s, you can understand why somebody would write that. Man, you, I, I'm driving a Ford pickup that was made in 2005. It's 2018. I'll probably drive it for another 10 years. There's plenty of Fords and Chevys lasting 10 years today, isn't there? And the good times aren't over for good. And But yet, if you listen to this song, you kind of feel like it's about today. Because, well, look at the people that you were talking about, Jack, that, 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 that think everything they don't, like, they don't like is a fascist. You know, they're crazy. These leftists are crazy. The left has always been crazy. Go look at the demands the feminists had in the 70s. They make what they're asking for today look sane. They rather mind nuts. And they had a bigger point back then. They had a more valid point then than they do now, and they were crazier then. I've said it before. There's never been a time in the history of our country where the average person had a better chance to build something really meaningful, to become wealthy. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that some of the points here aren't valid. It doesn't mean that some nostalgia is not valid. But a lot of nostalgia is, is false nostalgia. There's a book I read a long time ago, The America We Never Were. It goes through and busts all these myths. It's a big old you know, balloon popping party. Oh, I see that you believe in Molly Pitcher from the Revolution. Nice little bubble you got there, baby. Pop. Whoa, I see. You, you say all this stuff about Paul Revision. Pop. And it's just, it goes from the founding all the way up to like almost present day. And just all these, actually that one was called Founding Myths. So that one was all, all based on the founders and all these things about how the country started and uh, all these stories we tell in Washington and it's cherry tree and stuff like that. And just pop, 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 pop. And I think there's a lot of us that we, we look back and say, well, it was easier in the 1950s. Let me tell you who wouldn't have said it was easier in the 1950s. Your granddaddy. Your granddaddy would not have said it was easier to be trying to support a family in the 1950s than it is today. And your, your granddaddy, if he's old enough, or your great-granddaddy living during the Depression, and you start whining to him about how hard it is to get by today, he would slap the crap out of you. So I like this song. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, like yesterday, I wanted to give you contrast with the song. Well, I'll contrast this song against the way things really are. Sometimes you might feel like we're headed, you know, we're like a snowball headed to hell with no kind of chance for the flag or the liberty bell. But we are the we there. And it's up to us to make the most of what we have. As I've said, there are people that if you put them in a prison yard and tell them they have to stay there, will sit there and complain about it. And there's people that will test every inch of the fence line and look for one gap to slip out. And if they can't get out, they'll find the most freedom they can with the confines that they have, and they'll constantly look for how to get out to the next layer. If they get out to the next layer and there's another fence, well, they'll keep working on that one, and they'll maximize liberty for themselves and their lives. You want to worry about the liberty bell, worry about the liberty bell that is the beating of your own heart. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. When the country was strong, 
Back before Elvis and before Vietnam War came along. Before the Beatles and yesterday, when a man could still work, still would. Best of the free life behind us now And are the good times really over for good And are we rolling downhill like a snowball Headed for hell With no kind of chance for the flag Ford and a Chevy will still last ten years like the shoe. It's the best of the free life behind us now. Are the good times really over for good? I wish Coke was still cola in a joint. Bad place to be. And it was back before Nixon lied to us all on TV. Before microwave ovens, when a girl could still cook, still would. Stop the free life behind us now. Are the good times really over for good? I'll be rolling down the hill like a snowball headed for hell. With no kind of chance for the flag of liberty. Wish a Ford and a Chevy would still last ten years like they should. Is the best of the free life behind us now? Are the good times really over for good? Stop rolling down the hill like the snowball headed for hell. Of the free life is still yet to come, and the good times ain't over.